Welcome to the Willing to Listen South Bruce Proud podcast. Willing to Listen is a grassroots volunteer group based in South Bruce, Ontario, that is dedicated to thoroughly investigating multiple aspects of Canada's proposed deep geological repository for spent nuclear fuel. I'm Sheila Wittick, and I'm so excited to have you join me as we delve into this controversial project. Today, I'm joined by Grand Council Chief Reg Nignabi from the Anishinaabek Nation. We're going to be discussing the joint declaration between the Anishinaabek Nation and the Iroquois Caucus on the transport and abandonment of radioactive waste. And we're also going to talk about um, other topics such as consultation and how to appropriately consider both Indigenous knowledge and Western science into the conversation, specifically applying that to nuclear waste management. Good evening. How are you? Hello, I'm good. Thank you. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. That's good. Thanks so much for doing this. This is awesome. Hey, you're welcome. You're welcome. If you don't mind just taking a couple of minutes and introducing yourself for our listeners. Yep. Grand Council Chief, Reg Niganabi, Nishnebek Nation, uh, coming from Mississauga First Nation. Uh, of course, the Nishnebek Nation represents 39 First Nations across Ontario, a uh, population of over 65,000, and it extends... The representation territory extends from Sarnia area over to Ottawa area and then up to Thunder Bay. So basically surrounding the Great Lakes or portion of the Great Lakes, should I say. That's awesome. 65,000 people. Yes, absolutely. I don't it's, think I knew uh, that number. <laughs> yeah, it's quite a large territory. Yeah. I first got the idea or the the notion to ask you to come on um, when I heard you present to the Committee on Environment and Sustainable Development. I, well, I watched that presentation and I thought, you know, you'd be a really great representative to have on here. I know the, I feel like the Indigenous voices are often overlooked is the wrong word, but not given, not given the recognition that they should be given in this conversation. I feel like there's a lot of talk about South Bruce or Ignace, whichever community we're talking about, but there's not a whole lot of conversation about First Nations. And I feel like that isn't right in any way, shape or form. Um, so I wanted to give you the opportunity to come on and kind of give us a bit of Indigenous perspective. What I wanted to talk about primarily is the joint declaration between the Anishinaabek Nation and the Iroquois Caucus on the transport and abandonment of radioactive waste. So. Could you give us a little bit of background on how that declaration came to be? So that declaration came to be when originally it revolved around, of course, the Nuclear Waste Management Organization uh, and their low and high levels of burial of nuclear waste. So that sort of started that conversation off. But then that also included, they were looking to remove some, uh, some radioactive uh, components, I guess, some very large-scale components and move them over to, I think it was Sweden at the time, and transport them along the Great Lakes. So, of course, the Iroquois Caucus raised issue with this because it would be moving up the St. Lawrence Seaway and through all their sort of uh, communities, but then also the communities surrounding the Great Lakes, which is our communities within the Anishinaabek Nation. So a need was brought up to address this issue because we are definitely totally opposed to transporting these along the Great Lakes uh, seaways, just in case of an accident um, or any other potential risk, we figured that the risk to the uh, the seaways or the waterways themselves was greater than the risk of leaving it where it was. 
So there was no desire to remove it from there. And also the same too with the uh, nuclear waste, the, the deep geological repositories that they're looking at. Because they were at that time actively searching for areas within our territories to bury these wastes. Um, and some of our First Nations have some sort of relationship with the nuclear industry. Right. And uh, so none of them were supportive of uh, doing this. So that's how the Iroquois Nation, how the Iroquois Caucus and the Anishinaabeg Nation Caucus came together to help address this issue. Okay. Yeah. There's <laughs> nuclear waste. It's always, it's always the, what's, what's the right words? I don't even know what the right thing to describe it is, but it's always, I guess I'll say the boogeyman. It's always the <laughs> waste, right? It's, yeah. It's the, so I know it gets to be a little bit tricky because, you know, the waste is here. What do we do with it? Kind of becomes the conversation. So I find myself being a supporter of DGRs, not necessarily here, but I do think they are a good solution. I do find this declaration. I keep looking for the right word because I, I don't want to use a different word <laughs> to be interesting to me. So for the long-term management of radioactive wastes, five principles were all agreed upon. So yes. do you want to just walk us through what those were, those five, if you have it in front of you? Actually, I don't have it in front of me, but let me find it here and I'll, I'll be happy to discuss all five of them. But yeah, with, in, in terms of the... Um, the deep geological repositories and nuclear waste in general, it, it has been a very, I guess, poor, maybe not explanation, but a very poor engagement and discussion with First Nations. Because mm-hmm. of course they they weren't never they were never included in the discussion. And then a lot of it was offers of monetary gain, I guess, right. for a lot of the First Nations. So that became an issue with a lot of the First Nations because uh there's a suspicion when money's thrown at it right away. Well, and, um, and I can see that too. We have that conversation here in South Bruce sometimes where people will say, you know, there's the well-being fund and it's used to buy a new fire truck. And it's like, well, is that a good faith thing? Or, you know, is it a bit of here, we'll give you some money, take our waste kind of conversation. And I, I do find those conversations interesting, the different perspectives on it. But yeah, it is, it, it can be suspicious. And I, I totally do empathize with that. Well, I think, um, well, there's two aspects to it, right, too. Like, as I had mentioned in my standing committee presentation is like, uh, there is um, like that monetary piece, too, is a little bit of uh, a bit of coercion for the First Nations to be able to, to say, to want to say yes to that. Right. Yeah, a bit of like, I know people here call it bribery. Here, take this. Take yeah. This. Um, yeah, because, which... I mean, the Indian Act kept First Nations designed to, uh, you know, be economically challenged. Uh, the, the laws with Indian Act actually help perpetuate that and, and enforce that very well. So when you're living in poverty or you don't really, maybe not even poverty, but when you're living in a way where there's no economic opportunities or no economic sustainability, Things yeah. that come along like that and whatever little amount that might be attached to it um, yeah. has a, you know, it, it sounds really good. Yeah. And then it does, it does come back to the maybe agreeing to it for the wrong reasons. Exactly. Um, exactly. Which I, I can totally see that too. I know there are some people who think, oh, this thing will bring lots of money even to South Bruce. They think there are people, um, not myself, but <laughs> there are people who think, hey, this would be great. Think of all the money. Um, yeah. which I think is very short-sighted. 
if that's your goal. Um, right. I think if you're looking at it as from the perspective of we have this material that we need to do something with, let's make a plan that's safe for the longest amount of time possible. Like, I think that should be the goal, not the money personally. <laughs> I think anybody right. who does anything for money generally ends up in a bad spot. <laughs> um <laughs> But yeah, it is definitely a tricky conversation to have. Yeah, and I, we find um, amongst the First Nations too that the uh, nuclear industry itself does a really poor job of being able to promote itself or explain itself. Mm-hmm. So that yeah. causes a bit of a, a barrier too. Right. Um, because there are, it's not to say there aren't solutions within nuclear or that there aren't some positive outcomes possible with it. Mm-hmm. Um that's not very explained very well to community. So there's not, so with that, you know, inactive and ineffective engagement, you have a definite no. It's (laughs) the default position will always be no until you're able to explain and elaborate and uh, formulate the ideas. Yeah. um, In a good way and formulate, uh, inform communities in a good way. I know when the NWMO did visits to along the North shore, because, uh, my community was one of the kind of the ones that was kind of considered along with uh, Sagamok Anishinaabek and uh, Serpent River First Nation. And they okay. were considering it in our territory up by Elliott Lake area, north of Elliott Lake. Hmm? Their engagement sessions weren't very, weren't done very well. Let's put it that way. Right. Um, I think at one point, uh, I think actually in each community, they were asked to leave at some point just because during the middle of the presentation, they had said something disparaging to the community. And so there was no desire to listen to them any further. Um, yeah, not good at all. So the, the ability to not explain it very well led to those sort of scenarios where you didn't have that. Yeah, then- but it's funny because I do, I shouldn't say funny. I hate that I say that. It's the worst thing that I say. <laughs> like, oh, it's funny because I don't actually mean funny. It's like strange. I right, I know strange. what you mean. Yeah. It's the worst, it's the worst, like whatever, off topic. Even here in South Bruce, right? That's kind of why I started willing to listen because there's, you know, the NWMO will put out these reports about the DGR and they're like 700 pages long. And, yes. you know, people that, want to know and have a legitimate desire to try to do what's right and not based on money or things we've talked about before you know they they try to read those reports and they just get bogged down because it's so much information that it's almost like what is this and when you're if you're not familiar with nuclear like I am an operator at Bruce Power I never Mm -hmm. shy away from that that um that fact it even for me, with my experience in nuclear, I read some of those. I'm like, what does that mean? Like, what is that? <laughs> and I have to go digging through 12 other papers from different people to try to come back to what they're trying to say to me. And that's kind of why we started this, because, you know, Willing to Listen is trying to take those overwhelming <laughs> reports that are like ridiculously <laughs> long and technical and turn them into normal speak what i call them for people to understand because it's so much it is a lot like the information sharing is not the best right exactly yeah because my community sits right next to uh the chemical refinery here in uh, the blind river area okay Uh, we're only a kilometer away from it but uh 
even in this area, you know, that's just part of the conversion process and it's just part of the fuel process. But people here get worried like there's going to be a Chernobyl next door to us. And it's like, that's not what they do there. Yeah. And and people even living in the area don't quite understand that at some times. Mm. So the need for that engagement and discussion and it even exists at that level. Like all levels of it, I find yeah. are are, mis- are mysteries to people. Well, yeah, and I find people hear nuclear and that's where their brain goes is Chernobyl. Exactly. Yes. And yes. I do find that even when we talk about the GR is that there will be people who say we don't want South Bruce to be Chernobyl. And yeah. it's trying to explain to them that it can't do that. Like that won't happen. That's literally not possible with spent fuel. It, like it, it won't happen. But to try to explain it some people that are trying to explain it are so technical with how they're explaining it. I'm like, it's not helping Mm -hmm. because like you're, it just doesn't help. Like you need to make it easy to understand and not super technical and not, you know, there are ways to communicate and engage with people. And I I do find you're right that the nuclear industry is not great. (laughs) They're not great at it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, You got to break down the language so that people are speaking the same language as each other. You can't speak too technical or else, you know, it's easy to get lost in. Yeah, I'm well, sure and I find for, too for any job you have, right? It's having the right people in the right spots. I think too. A lot of times, this is stereotypical of myself, but you know, engineers are not necessarily the best at speaking to people. So you know, like when you put someone super technical, sometimes trying to explain things, they aren't mm-hmm. good at that communication piece. But people who are really good at the communication piece maybe don't understand the technical piece. And there is that gap there where things are getting lost, I think. <laughs> and mm-hmm. it, Yes, it, exactly. It, it, yeah, it's a whole other topic that could be <laughs> for quite a while because it's one of my biggest issues, I will say, with this whole thing is that the information is there, but it's just not easily grasped by most people. It's very heavy right. and very deep and it's a lot. <laughs> right. Exactly. And even for us too, like, at, and, and we're open to the conversation. We're open to having these conversations. We're open to listen. We're hope, we're opening to all these sort of different things, but there's also a give and take that we expect between the two when the nuclear committee decides on things and they've said it themselves. And, and it was kind of reiterated within that uh, committee standing committee meeting was that they go based upon their knowledge and, and what they're able to what they're presented with and all these sort of different things. But the one thing that's missing out of all of that is an understanding of indigenous views and issues and history and treaty and law and all these sort of different things. Cause there's not just, you know, Canadian law, there's a Anishinaabe law that applies to some of this too, that we have to deal with. So there's those sort of things that they have to understand. And that was our part of our argument was if they don't have all of this information, then are they really making the best in- decision on the information that they have yeah that's true missing our information within it so those are part of the conversations going back and forth and are continuing on and, and we can jump into the five principles now yeah, i was gonna say like. i was gonna say we better get we better get back on track here <laughs> this is gonna end up yeah. being three hours we gotta get back on track. yeah uh, so, it's always so a good sign five... though when it goes off the rails it's always a good sign <laughs> yeah. yeah of course there's always some some added discussion within there right some yeah, clarification yeah, for sure so yeah, let's dig into these five principles. You lead the way. Sure. Uh, the first principle, there, there should be no abandonment, but rather a policy of perpetual stewardship. 
because uh, of course climate change has made weather events unpredictable and therefore human-made storage must be resilient to ensure that radioactive materials stay out of the food we eat, the water we drink, the air we breathe, and the land we live on. So of course that's just being able to retrieve um, anything that you abandon in the ground for any purpose, uh, to be able to monitor it, to be able to make sure it's safe, because of course when you're putting it in the ground, uh, our people are worried about water sources. Mm-hmm. And of course, uh, any water source for any leakage could lead to other contaminating other areas. It just doesn't impact the area where we're at. Um, in our area, we're fully aware of that, especially like in the Serpent River watershed here. Uh, there was uranium um, mining that took place in the lake. And then they have the mining tailings ponds. And then the area where they help kind of convert and, and, and uh, break down the uranium mm-hmm. in the minerals uh, at another sited location and that impacts the whole watershed the the water not being safe to drink for the people of uh, serpent river so you know what i mean it's we're fully aware of those sort of things at this point in our time now so that retrieval and monitoring of that was paramount to everybody and they're worried that just placing it underground and putting it out of sight out of mind that's the way it'll happen people will eventually just abandon it and leave it there and and then what do we know we don't know until we until it's too late, right? If something were to happen, you, d- you don't know what you don't know. <laughs> That's exactly. Not, every, not, yeah. 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 Every things can be unpredictable sometimes. So we didn't want to. So that was the first point that they had no abandonment whatsoever. It has to be retrievable. It has to, you have to be able to um, monitor it as best to your ability as you can. And then of course, uh, the second, uh, the best possible containment must be used with adaptable pack with adaptable packaging to align with changing environmental conditions. Going back to that, seeing how they planned on packaging it, seeing how they planned on transporting it, all these sort of different things. Uh, of course, the fear of during that transportation phase, something happening uh, that occurs where, you know, some of this contamination gets back into the into the environment. Right. Uh, thirdly, it should be modern and retrievable in relationship of continuous guardianship. Information resource must be passed from one generation to the next to ensure that the signs of leakage are able to be addressed. So going back to that again, that was, of course, that's our paramount worry. Uh, the fourth principle declares that nuclear waste should be away from major water bodies. When we poison our waterways, we poison ourselves, rivers and lakes, or the blood and lungs of Mother Earth. Um, so that was, of course, addressing the issue of transporting along the waterways. And right. we are we are fully aware that there is... Um, nuclear waste sitting on the shorelines right now in some areas we know those are protected we know they're they're going to be there because they're being produced there so it's it's acceptable for now but it should be something that should be addressed of course um, and moving it to a new the new waterway uh, like they were proposing in a lot of the areas is just a new cause it like compounding the issue a little bit further it's in right. one area bad enough if you're putting it all over the place now then it's there's a worry for disaster of course and then of course finally exports and imports of waste should be forbidden except in truly exceptional cases after full consultation with all those whose lands and waters are being put at risk and that was the five um, and of course that import export thing addresses the issue of uh you know, transporting the one to Sweden or bringing anything in from anywhere else and accepting waste from somewhere else to be stored uh, within Canada. Within actually, Ontario, something actually. that I something that I learned about only recently when we talk about imports or exports, I think it was in one of the 
another, it might've even been the, the session that you were part of, but the second half for the standing council when they were talking or the standing committee, sorry, when they were talking about cobalt 60 and how we export it for medical purposes, but then we bring back the spent cobalt. Yes. And I'm, I did not know that. And that's kind of appalled. Why are we bringing it back? We <laughs> sold it to them. I don't understand. Um, so that right. one kind of threw me for a loop. because I was like, I don't understand why we're bringing it back. That does seem kind of weird. Like, yeah, I don't we have send to be fully aware of these sort of agreements. The it's weird. <laughs> it's just strange. Right. Exactly. Right. They are, there are these sorts of agreements that uh, I guess Canada and nuclear um, organizations agree to um, just to be able to help move their product. Right. Yeah, that, that one was one that I had never heard of. And I was, is that true? And I had to go digging. I'm like, oh my gosh. Okay, well, yeah. here we go. Um, so, exactly. And that's that part of the nuclear industry where it's really very quiet. And you'd never hear these sort of things going on until you're made aware of them. And then you have to go find it. And sure enough, it's out there, but as information. But it's, uh, yeah. it's just not something that everybody's aware of. Yeah. And so it's, this is, this is me and I putting on my nuclear hat (laughs) um Mm -hmm. but like when i look at these these principles outside of the away from major water bodies that one maybe can't be ticked off but i feel like the other four like a dgr does well a well-planned dgr i should say not every not every dgr a well-planned dgr could address well a well-planned one could address all of them um if it was away from water bodies So I guess my question kind of becomes, you know, like are DGRs in general frowned upon or like, is it just having the right location or like is, is the, what do they call it? The rolling stewardship. Is that like the preferred long-term solution when we're talking to um, like first nations people like what is the, or is it not known? Maybe, maybe the end game isn't known yet because there's not enough information out there. Uh, I think that is part of the issue is that there's not enough information out there. And of course, I think part of that has to do with the secrecy too of the uh, nuclear industry. I I get, I understand why they do certain things the way they do and uh, why they keep certain things kind of quiet to some level. Mm -hmm. Um, Of course, like the transportation, if it was being transported and they do transport stuff already, but when it is transported, it's not known anywhere, right? Right. Um, so I think there's a level of mistrust right there on that aspect. But then when you factor in the whole, like I said, the issue of the what can be perceived as persuasion to sign it based upon financial gain or right. uh, loss of territory. Because if you build a DGR, wherever you decide to build it, if it's near a First Nation land, the First Nation already has a certain limited of area within the reservation lands that they have access to anyways. But then if you expand that out into their you know, harvesting and gathering territory, then a DGR, no matter what size of footprint it is, removes more land from the area base because of course it's not safe to hunt or gather or do anything within that, that area, just for a matter of safety for the workers or employers, I mean, employees who are working at that facility. So there's, you know, there's, there's different layers to these sort of things that I don't think they have a conversation about, or they don't discuss. Yeah. So there's, of course, there's apprehension. And of course, there's an issue with that right away. Like, you mean a loss of more land? No, that's not acceptable to us. Or we don't have clean drinking water. Now you want to put something in the ground that we're afraid can contaminate our drinking water. 
and then we really have no water. And how does that impact the the uh, environment around us? Because of course, everything as we believe is interconnected, and to a degree, it is of course. Um, so an impact on one impacts all, right? Yeah, for sure. And I know water's a a great concern. I think across the board. I know there's several people who I talk to who will say to me, I just don't want to risk the water. And they're like, I, I understand what they're telling me. And I don't want to risk the water, mm-hmm. um, which is understandable. Like we have probably what, the most fresh water in the world in the Great Lakes, I would imagine. Like it's a huge right. amount yeah. um, and it is a precious resource. We like water is it's, it's life. Like we're dead if we don't have Ouch. water. So absolutely. Um, like, yeah, it, it definitely is a concern. I think the, the thing that the thing for me is when I look at and this is me getting into my own brain. So stop me if you don't care. to hear it. But, um, <laughs> the, the thing for me is when I look at what we do now, which it just seems to be so reliant on people being aware and responsible and willing to look after it where it is that. For me, what we're doing is okay for right now because we do have a quote unquote healthy nuclear <laughs> industry um, yep. that looks after it. But like what happens when that doesn't exist? And for me, and like that's that's the terrifying part for me. I know it's safe where it is right now, but to think that we'll do that forever is kind of scary because there's a lot of I feel like there's a lot more unknowns in that situation where we're dealing with people and glaciation and wars. And what if society just gets lazy and they don't care anymore? (laughs) I don't know. Mm -hmm. It just seems like there just (laughs) seems to be such an unknown there that I feel like doing nothing isn't really the answer either. Right. And our energy needs, right? Is, is Is there a need for more? Is another yeah. question. Is another flip side to that. Is there a need for more nuclear facilities, um, yeah. just to keep up with our energy? Because uh, you know, as we're yeah. learning more about it and the need for it and the demand for it and the switch from I don't know gas-powered vehicles or fossil fuel vehicles to electric vehicles, that's going to put a larger demand on our electronic grid, right? So there's a yeah, there's so many things to consider. And if we want to combat climate change, is this the answer? Like there's so many yeah, it's it's a very complicated conversation. <laughs> it's definitely Absolutely not a, it it's is. definitely not a one and done. It's not like hey we should do this because it's so I always say it's so dynamic because everything kind of impacts everything else. And it's in my conversations with the NWMO that comes up a lot too. That you know if someone in geology notices something it affects this and this and this and this and this and and then they all have to kind of go back to okay hold on (laughs) we found this way over here so we need to make sure that doesn't affect all of these things and yes when you look at it i'm like no wonder there's been decades of research into geological storage because the smallest thing which may seem inconsequential could have huge impacts down the road so it's it's kind of mind-blowing really (laughs) when you think about it oh definitely it's it's and i think that is part of part of the conversation that's hard to have too is this overwhelming amount of time we're talking about like right we're talking about billions of years down the road it is unfathomable like you can't i i have no idea what a million years from now looks like yeah 
it's a measurable for us. Yeah. Like it's, it's an, it's really an insane ask <laughs> to try to do this. <laughs> yeah. But, but so we've been trying to keep up in those conversations and we're like, uh, like this Iroquois uh, Nation caucus has reformed. It kind of went a little bit to the wayside because the DGR discussion had kind of gone away and the, uh, the moving of those parts along the Bruce had moved like that discussion had ended. Mm-hmm. Um, but now it's coming back because now you have to worry about climate change and nuclear. Is that the answer or is that not the answer or what are we acceptable? What are the new technologies? Are there new technologies that are actually using um, former fuel, spent mm-hmm. fuel and reutilizing them and removing some more of the, uh, radioactivity from them so those are some of the discussions that are taking place now that we've kind of engaged in and a little bit more into the discussion around uh, you know the nuclear committee itself and and how many like you know how it operates and how it makes its decisions we're hoping to inform a lot of those discussions because like i said we're willing to engage mm-hmm. but it's also a matter of but are you willing to listen and really implement some of the our issues that we want to put in there right are you going to address them yeah, which which I think leads to the uh, to the other point that I really wanted to cover is they do seem in a way sometimes fundamentally different Western science and indigenous knowledge. They seem like you know sometimes they're they're very different, but they do. I was just reading about it today a little bit how they're the same and how they're different. Um, but so like, how do we get them to work together to find a solution that that will work? You know, because I I don't want well, I, I say I, but I, I think I can speak for most people that are rational and reasonable. I think, you know, most people want a solution for nuclear waste that's that's a good solution, that's going to be safe, that's going to be in the time frame we're looking at acceptable. So how do how do we make I don't know how to word the question. How do we make Western science and indigenous knowledge, I don't want to say meld together because that doesn't really work, but how do we make them work together in a way that, you know, we find a solution that is satisfying to, to both knowledges? I guess it's that inclusion piece where we actually hold a discussion and have really fruitful conversations around this and actually implement some of the ideas that uh, First Nations may have around it or address some of the issues, at least, because it's not just like the Indigenous knowledge portion is, is several layers and several levels, right? Mm-hmm. Of course, we want to protect water because we understand water because like, uh, you know, as you were saying earlier, we can't go without it. And it's, it's something that is sacred, of course, and we really need. And there's only certain limited amounts of it. Yep. Uh, we're, we're all dead in three days if we don't have water. So Exactly. Because, yeah, because we have an understanding of that from the level of fasting and harvesting and these sort of things. When you're out on the land, you need access to good water, clean water, because you can survive without food for quite a long time. But without water, you're that's yeah. it, right? You're done for. Yeah. yeah. And then you have like these territorial issues that you have to include too: land base, loss of land base, loss of land use. When you factor those in too, because those are important to us because of our harvesting, because as we talked about earlier, the, the First Nations aren't always well off. So a lot are, but some aren't. But some of our people also traditionally supplement their diets with traditional food sources. Right. So having access to those food sources is important too. So there's that component that you have to add in on our understanding of the land, wherever you decide to hold these facilities or wherever they might be across the board, whether they be DGRs or nuclear 
storage facility. I never, I never thought, I don't know how I didn't think about it. Um, but I never thought about like the traditional hunting lands and gathering. I never, I didn't think about that. Yeah. Well, there's, there's that loss of land use, right? It's, it's on all sorts of different ways. There's a loss of land use there. So it impacts first nations heavily. Hmm. We have something, we have a worry there. Um, we, we've seen so much land use lost that well, to us, yeah. it's probably, it's almost traumatizing significant so at this point. 100% right? justified concern. 100% justified. <laughs> There's like, yeah, 100%. Right. And we've also seen promises of, uh, you know, employment or other things uh, in areas, but in all reality, uh, it's not really an economic win for a lot of places sometimes because people will move to wherever it is and, and, you know, non-native people will move to wherever that area is. And then you have a cultural influence. You have a, all of a sudden a historical influence there. And then you have, there's, there's a change in culture and relationship there. Mm-hmm. When you have, you know, people move closer to a first nation who are non-native and then you have a, a, an exchange, whether it be good or bad, it could go either way. So there's an impact on the first nation on that level. Of course, you've heard of like uh, man camps and these sort of things, like during the construction yes. of it. Yes. You have the influx of the construction workers and all these sort of different things, right? So mm-hmm. there's impacts to First Nations that aren't necessarily seen on the surface, but and are aware of only because we've experienced the the fallout from those or the negative aspects. We've experienced the good aspects too. Don't get it wrong. There is, you know, there there are First Nations who have benefited uh, some sort of something like this taking place in their territory, like in Saskatchewan. I understand the First Nations there do very well with Cameco and working in conjunction with Cameco. So there's those positive outlooks. And I understand that some of this is starting to take place in New Brunswick uh, with some of the First Nations there. So there are stories to look at where things are beneficial, but it's to be aware of those other issues too and be able to mitigate them and rectify them before they begin. Yeah, I know that work camp conversation has come up and I know I have sent some doozy emails to be like this better not if this comes here there will not be no work camps <laughs> right no, no thank you no but there there is not a population explosion of people that kind of it's like a you know like old logging camps and those sort of things when people kind of flood into an area to be able to like we've have experience with that we have experience with logging we have experience with mining so we are totally aware that these sort of things happen uh so we we are precautious in that manner yeah it's 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 such a strange it's such a strange balancing act i find when i when i'm thinking about a possible dgr cuz it's like on one hand i know like i have people tell me all the time i just don't care if anything bad happens which to me is ridiculous my children are here my friends and family are here too i don't want anything to happen here like i don't want to see us yeah. not be able to drink our water i don't want to see that either um exactly but I, I do think there is like a disconnect sometimes though, between, you know, everybody, everybody wants to see this be safe. It's just, we all differ on how we think safe looks. Right. That how safe do you want it to be? Yeah. No, I totally understand. Yeah. So it's, it's, uh, it's an interesting conversation for sure. Absolutely. It is. It's, it's a very uh, much needed conversation. The very fulsome conversation. You won't be able to address all the issues, but as long as we can come to some sort of consensus at the end of the day. Yeah. And traditionally, that's all we ever look for. So something that I don't, I don't want to say appeases the most people, because I, I feel like that gets used a lot, the majority of people, but something that satisfies everyone's desire to have a solution that's safe yep. would, be, would be fantastic. How do you think we can get 
Indigenous people involved in the consultation process and engaged in the process. Even myself, I don't work for the NWMO. I don't, I don't do that. Like, how, how do I get people to want to, to listen and be engaged? You have to bring it to the communities themselves and hear everybody's kind of side of the view. And it would help if you have a good ability to facilitate that discussion and really inform people. Because in our traditional forms of governance, you would have a discussion and you would have all points of views and you would view it from all different lenses for the community, whether it be social, economic, justice, health. You would look at it from all lenses and you Mm -hmm. would inform a discussion based around those different lenses and then formulate a consensus decision on it. But that consensus decision would be based upon what are we, if there's concerns, how can you appease those concerns? And how can you address those concerns? And if you address and appease those concerns and you're comfortable with it, then you can get to a consensus, yes. So there has to be a long engagement with communities. And it's not, the sooner that whoever the NWMO or you know NRCAN, whoever it might be, can engage in those conversations, the better. Because then you won't have delays And if you can reach that decision with a community, then you'll have their confidence and trust going forward too. But a lot of these scenarios, people just come in and they visit for a day or two and then they're gone again. And there's no trust. There's no, there's no reliance there. They they expect that day or two to be enough. Exactly. Our our whole relationship or something like the 700 page document for somebody to read that the first nations just don't have the capacity to go through all of that. Nobody has. Yeah. The time to read all 700 pages and understand it. Yeah. Hey, we consulted. We sent you that report. You exactly. <laughs> it's not, not really helpful, but thanks. I know yeah, thanks. I, uh, we, we have, we, we deal with the same things. It's, hey, that report's available online. And we have community members who say, I don't, I don't understand that, that report. It's, I don't have time to read 1200 pages or whatever it is. And yeah. Yeah, there's definitely a there's definitely room for improvement there. Exactly. And First Nations will be able to tell you what they need. And it might be jobs, but they also are fully aware that there's an education component that comes with it. You can't just pop into the community and set start setting this thing up and expect us to have people who are trained to be able to do the things that need to be done. Especially like say some communities for some whatever, they've been in mining and logging forever. So that's what they know. They don't know. Right. How to build a DGR or how to operate a facility or, you know, so you have to have the people being able to skilled trades to be able to fit those positions. So you might have to have some investment in that aspect of things. Yeah. Well, and it's funny you say that because Sarah go again, not funny. It's interesting that you say that. Um, (laughs) Gotta stop saying that Um, (laughs) because I've said that to certain representatives from the NWMO. I've said they've like, you know, they'll tell you, oh, there's going to be 800 local jobs. Like, okay, how do people get those jobs? Because I'm I'm like, it's fine to give us a number, but I'm like the kids, like say this goes ahead, kids right now who maybe want to work there constructing it or being an engineer on site or whatever they want to do. I'm like, they need to know what they need to do to be able to do that job. And exactly. there needs to be some sort of supports in place for people who want to do that job and maybe can't, you know, and I've really stressed that, you know, there needs to be a guarantee of local hiring 
not necessarily mm-hmm. bring 1200 people up from Toronto and move them here. Like, no, no, no. <laughs> like we need to employ the people who live around here, whether they be from Saugeen or South Bruce or Bruce County or wherever, you know, yep. but we need to commit to, to the, a certain percentage being local jobs, I think, because yeah. the jobs coming yeah. here is not enough. You know, we want, it's good to have them be local kids so they can stay here and grow up here and raise their families here. You hit it exactly. I think that's the the point that I, I think a lot of uh, organizations overlook when they do that job portion or that promising that job portion is if you overlook the people that are already there, those people are there because they want to be there. They're going to stay there. They're not going to, you're not going to train them up and they're not going to leave. They're going to start their family there. They're going to be there. They, they love the area. They want to be there. And that's especially true for First Nations. Everybody wants to be on their First Nation because it's their home history, their home territory. They have a strong connection to the area. They know it better than anybody else. All these sort of different things play into a factor too. So the in my opinion, if I was an employer of these sort of people, that's that's who I'd want to be working there because they're going to stay in the area. They're not going to leave and work somewhere else or go off on a job somewhere else after I've trained them or spent invested so much money into training them. It just yeah. makes more sense to me, but I know that's not the way it's viewed a lot of times. I know. <laughs> sometimes, <laughs> sometimes dealing with corporations, I tell you, <laughs> it's uh, they, they see it a certain way and it's really hard to make them see it differently. Yeah, which is kind of funny because if at the end, and I'm, I'm going to say it's kind of funny too, <laughs> you uh, if you were to do it that way, you also have your certainty that you will be supported in your project and endeavor there. Yeah, which I think is one of the big concerns people have is, you know, there's this promise of jobs, but there's no promise they're local. And yep. I, I feel like they, I feel like they'll try to hire local, but for me, that's still not really good enough. I, mm-hmm. I want to guarantee, and I personally would like to see them guarantee if it was to be here, that they would employ however many of those jobs would be from first nations too, whose territory we're in. They should also be guaranteed some of the jobs here and given the opportunity to train for those jobs so that they can do them. Absolutely. And if you can develop all of those things, then you have certainty and your investors have certainty and your organization has certainty there's not going to be any um you know strong pushback from communities or legal challenges or rights assertions or any of those sort of things it's a much more conducive relationship well it'll be interesting to see how this goes over the next year (laughs) (laughs) it should be interesting but yeah we are engaging in discussion with it so we are uh, we are an active engagement as long as they're willing to listen i'm i'm game for that willing to listen is our name so it's like, hey, there you go. and it goes both ways right if they want us to listen absolutely they need to be listening to what we want also and when i say we i mean you know south bruce municipality south bruce i mean Saugeen ojibwe i mean the anishinaabek nation i mean anyone who potentially is influenced or affected by this should be listened to yeah absolutely there's a give and take on both sides of it yeah well i am already over my half hour mark so <laughs> <laughs> as I you tend plenty to, do. to work with there but no so. thanks so much for doing this again I really do appreciate it it's been a lot of fun oh it was my pleasure thank you and that's it for this episode of willing to listen south bruce proud I look forward to further investigating Canada's plan for spent nuclear fuel along with all of you thanks so much for joining me and remember we don't have to agree on anything to be kind to one another mm-hmm.